0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The Iranian regime might be bidding itself happy birthday, but is anyone else? My guests Tim Marshall and Robert Fox will discuss that and the day's other news, including what Angela Merkel's recent troubles can tell us about the challenges of smooth successions and does infrastructure equal votes? Boris Johnson appears to
1: think so. Plus, as in Ireland, one question will continue to split Germany's conservatives. Is there ever a time to partner with the far right? We reflect on a pair
0: of major political upsets in Europe. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Robert Fox, Defence Editor of the Evening Standard, and Tim Marshall, author, former diplomatic editor of Sky News and editor of the what and the We will start with Iran. The 41st anniversary of anything is not traditionally one of the big ticket anniversaries. It doesn't even have its own designated gift. And looking that up is five seconds I'll never get back. The 41st anniversary of Iran's Islamic revolution has nevertheless been observed across Iran today. The celebrations length perhaps somewhat more edge than usual, by the great Satan's recent assassination of General Qasem Soleimani, commander of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guards, in a drone strike in Baghdad last month. Uh, Tim, we have seen uh, those big crowds, huge crowds, in fact, in the streets. Is it possible to tell how enthusiastic they really are? Uh, It's difficult
2: but when you know that sort of regime and when you've been over there, you do know that people get busted in by the thousand ID cards taken away. You get them back when you get off. That said, there are also hundreds of thousands of people who genuinely uh, do, do still support the regime. But you said the 41st, and yeah, uh, I mean it's not a big number for them. The importance of it was it comes after the Soleimani assassination and it, and it comes at a time when they're under so much pressure and they wanted to make a big show of it. It doesn't seem to be that it's energising the entire country. I think more importantly, what will happen around it is what happened after the Soleimani killing, which is that the people that are demonstrating, huge numbers of them now, realise now is not the time to stick my head above the parapet. And the the demonstrations just dropped away, the anti-regime demonstrations. Today is not the day to go on the street and demonstrate against the regime, but in X days or weeks, they will be back on the streets because the underlying factors of the economy and the anti-regime sentiment, that none of that has gone away and the economy is going to continue to get worse. And so it's all going to come back and the battle between sections of the population and the regime will at some point go come to a head. I doubt there'll be a 50th anniversary.
0: Robert, did you get the impression, or do you still have the impression, that the Iranian regime were startled and or spooked by the popular response, not necessarily to um, Qasem Soleimani's death, but to the shooting down of Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 uh, in the immediate aftermath? It was clear from those demonstrations that significant numbers of Iranians were genuinely appalled and embarrassed by what what their government had done. Well,
3: it's more than a cliche to say that national pride is at, at stake. I mean, this would account for the rather extraordinary, albeit, I think, quite orchestrated turnouts, turnouts for the funeral of Qasem hmm. Soleimani himself. But, um, the thing that really totalitarian regimes, which essentially it is in Iran, and we're finding it with the coronavirus in, in, in China, as we have discussed on this show frequently, they're not on top of the information flow by alternative media and through the internet. For all that they claim, both Beijing and Tehran are not completely there. But what is also, I think, must be quite embarrassing, quite embarrassing understatement for the regime in Tehran is that everything is going wrong abroad. Mm. Um, The the great um, Qasem Soleimani project, and by the way, I do uh, demur from other, other people. I don't think He was a great strategist at all. I think he went with the flow. He was in and around all sorts of people like Imad Mugnir at the very beginning of Hezbollah and and so on. But you could just see from his body language, he was a boyo that wanted to be on the front line with the lads beating his chest and so on. Because if he was a strategist, then the strategy is really falling apart very, very badly from Yemen. Particularly through to Iraq and 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 Syria uh, uh, at the moment. Now, the counter opinion—I mean, whether you get it through the BBC website—and I'm, I'm I'm being serious—does seep through, and this is getting through because, um, as Tim said, they're up against it because uh, it's not a great propaganda success. They've got themselves into a lot of trouble. They've got themselves, frankly, a bit stuck both in Iraq. Uh, uh,
2: and, and, and in Syria, but they, above all, they're running out of money. But brief, briefly on, mm. on, I was going to say exactly what Robert said about the coronavirus uh, and, and Iran. Totalitarian regimes can survive by, with well, the bargain is, don't worry, we're going to take care of everything. We're omnipotent. Everything we do is fine. And the trade-off is you don't get to choose, but you don't mind because everything we do works. Well, hang on, you just shot down an airliner and killed hundreds of people or hang on a minute you seem to have covered up this virus and at that point f- or,
0: or hang on you're lying to us about how bad this nuclear reactor explosion exa- is exactly
2: all those things and then the facade starts to crack and that's why these are dangerous moments
0: um, Robert, on a, on a defence note, um, the parades in Tehran today did include quite a lot of missiles of perhaps uh, dubious operability, but nevertheless they were there. Uh, President Hassan Rouhani did hasten to reassure that they weren't intended for attacks on neighbouring countries. Uh, how reassured should non-neighbouring countries be by that?
3: Well, I think they should be completely unreassured, <laughs> because they had a satellite launch which didn't work, and then it turned out not really to be a satellite launch, but a rocket launch that does have uh, a capability of carrying quite, uh, as John Major would say, quite a considerable payload over medium distances. And that spooks everybody from Greece, from the fringes of NATO, or all, all, all the way through. What are you really up to? And I do want to emphasize, I was just just looking at the fact that Israel has been carrying out an air war very successfully. Against um, Iran's uh, uh, initiative to arm Hezbollah and the militias in Syria, I mean they yeah. bomb T4 as they started, on, yeah. a, on, on a weekly basis, and the world doesn't bat an eyelid with that, uh, about this. And they're not being armed uh, in the way that Iran says that they could and should be. I'm talking about the militias, mm. including Hezbollah, and they're not being paid this is the point that the bargain with Hezbollah particularly in Lebanon which was the most obvious one was that Iran would pick up the tab for veterans uh, for injured veterans for war widows because they didn't very reluctantly did they go into did they go into Syria now they're struggling to pay that and they're struggling to do what Mohandis the other principal who was killed in the strike against Soleimani was up to. The fact is that the dollars aren't there from Iran to pay to pay the militias, to pay the the, 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 the popular brigades, and it had to be fiddled through the pro-Iranian elements, the more dubious elements in the uh, of the uh, of, of the Shia Iraqi regime.
0: Uh, Tim, final quick thought on Iran. Going back to the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, is it your impression that Iran now regards this matter as settled, that their launch of rockets in the vague vicinity of a couple of bases in Iraq shortly afterwards, clearly with a certain amount of coordination with the targets, um, represents the end of their response, or, or will no. they be saving something up? Um you know none of us know the future but they had to respond
2: militarily and they chose a middle option in that they sort of struck directly back at the great satan as in firing at their base but didn't really because they quite possibly deliberately missed and that was for national pride Mm. and world opinion but i i would suspect probably down the line in x months there'll be an incident somewhere and it'll be related back to the sulaimani well i mean We don't know, but I don't. I don't think they can take such a a punch in the face of that magnitude without coming back somewhere at some point.
0: Robert Fox and Tim Marshall will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today.
4: Thanks, Andrew. Several senior Chinese officials have been removed from their posts over their handling of the coronavirus outbreak. Those who've been sacked could face being punished by leaders in Beijing. It comes amid confirmation that the virus has now killed more than a thousand people. Fiona Fáil has emerged as the largest party following Ireland's general election. It means that they have just one more seat than the left-wing nationalists Sinn Féin, who've made big gains on the two main parties. The outcome could lead to a lengthy negotiation to form a government. Voters will cast their ballots in the New Hampshire primary today. It's the second state to declare the choice of Democratic Party candidates for the 2020 presidential election. And you can read more about what to expect from the New Hampshire primary by heading over to monocle.com and signing up to our daily email bulletin, The Monocle Minute. And finally, it's been confirmed that the most senior diplomat to defect from North Korea intends to stand for election in the South. Tae Yong-ho worked at the North Korean embassy in London when he defected in 2016. He's since become a vociferous critic of his former paymasters. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew
0: Muller still with me are Tim Marshall and Robert Fox. Well, let's look now at Germany and its ongoing attempts to map its post-Angela Merkel political landscape. Merkel, who has led her party since 2000 until very recently and her country since 2005, is due to step aside at some point in the nearish future. It was widely assumed that her successor would be Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who succeeded Merkel as leader of their party, the Christian Democratic Union in 2018. However, Kramp-Karrenbauer has announced that she is standing down and has therefore effectively ruled herself out as the next Chancellor. Uh, is the succession of a long-serving leader always going to be weird, wherever it is? I think you have to turn
3: it on its head, um, Andrew, because I think that what Thuringia which is where this really kicked off. This uh, is
0: where the we, AFD were briefly yeah. forming a government or helping um, to form a government. It's been a
3: heck of a shock. And I think that has led to Karimba, uh Grandpa Karamba, AKK, uh, going aside. It's part of a movement of nativism, of actually it's high romanticism, it is political nostalgism that they're going back to, which is really bedeviling European politics, and including in my own dear country, um, the the, the United Kingdom. It was mapped, and we were talking before coming on air, it is mapped very well in a wonderful book, a wonderful essay by Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes called The Light That Failed. What he... What they argue in that book is that post-1989, it is the antidote, this book, by the way, to the Fukuyama End of History thesis, mm-hmm. is saying that they failed to export liberal democracy and the idea that the, the, the imperative from Brussels and from liberal Washington, such that it was, was liberal imitation, that you market it to the world. And these two authors very skillfully say how it was never bought although they pretended to initially in the early Wild West years of Yeltsin, it was never bought by Russia. But the way that the new recruits to the new liberal Europe, uh, whether NATO, but above all the EU, have uh, there's almost like tissue or organ rejection going on there. (laughs) And they depict that um, very, very clearly. And obviously, the Visegrad 4 are a very, very good example, particularly uh, of Poland and Hungary. But this is also... Uh, very clearly seeping into German politics, and and this is the thing that I don't understand about the December election in the UK. I'm reading sophologist after sophologist. Yes, I can get that that that, that word out. <laughs> it's an tell me word, who moved from Labour to vote for Conservative. Why? And every answer that I have received, it could have been from an old communist regime. To every question, why, there is always a because, and it doesn't necessarily have to be true. I have not got a true answer as to why on attitude, uh, in the north of England, in Scotland, in Wales, in the left-behind areas, it's too simple to say that, as to why people are going back. And hence my big thesis, this is a rerun of romantic nostalgia in late 19th century politics where you look, you know, that it, 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 it is a hark back to a past, a past stability of the kind that Tim was talking about with how people tend to follow the deal with totalitarian regimes, but it's a past that never existed. And this is what Germany is now now facing. And I think both Merkel and AKK are quite right. They're taking it very, very seriously indeed, what happened in Thuringia, because it probably means um, an irreparable change for the CDU, for the Christian Democrats.
0: But Tim, there is kind of an overlap there, I guess, between even authoritarian regimes and democratic institutions, in that when they've been led by one person for a very long time, it actually becomes quite difficult to imagine anybody yeah. else doing that mm. job. I mean, it, it, it's a weird thing to think that there there will be British conservatives are still getting over. Well, Sanders. indeed, so there, there, there will be there will be German voters uh, next time out who can barely remember a chancellor who isn't Angela Merkel. Is there a way of negotiating any succession from a long-serving leader that doesn't involve a kind of identity crisis or nervous breakdown?
2: Uh, yes, <laughs> but it usually doesn't happen. I mean, I'm going to give you the football analogy, please. Ferguson at Manchester United rules the roost for the best part of 20 years, wins everything in sight. So the next person comes in, pretty much the same team, the stadium is the same, there's still a full house, etc., etc. But you have to go through three or four managers before, well, six if you include the latest one, before you can find the new messiah. And sometimes political parties are like that. And, I mean, Labour in our country have not come back from Tony Blair. Absolutely right. Boris Johnson um maybe the new thatcher Uh, but dragging it back to germany i mean thuringia is so such a such an emblematic place it's in east germany Mm. Um, it was the first place that voted for the nazi party in the 1930s and so it's so symbolic and in comes the afd which are the vague inheritors i mean there's a you know quite a distance between most of the party members and Nazis, not all of them.
0: Not as big a distance as one might
2: prefer, Well, especially not with the guy that was standing in this. And what happened was, is that the CDU party actually, uh, it seems to be connived to form a government with AFD, whereas the rule is you do not deal with these people. But this is the new reality, and then it goes to what Robert said. I I worry that the better parts of liberalism have peaked in the Western world, and that we are now seeing the tide receding. And I'm not sure AKK, perhaps she wasn't up for the fight. I think Merkel in her early days would have had the energy to be up for the fight, and she's always stood against this. And I always remember what Helmut Kohl said when he left the chancellorship. Do not forget, I am the last uh, chancellor that lived and experienced the Second World War. And the memories are fading. So whoever comes in has got to try and hold that line. How do you hold that line of not dealing with the right if the population is moving to the right and you need to keep your votes to keep liberalism alive? she has tried to tack to the right somewhat. It still isn't working and this is the challenge for whoever leads
0: not just Germany but many of the
2: European countries.
0: Okay well finally on today's news panel let's take a look at the UK and two big infrastructure stories which are dominating the current news cycle. One at least more or less exists in verifiable reality. This is HS2 the rail line which for an outlay of 100 billion quid will make it half an hour quicker to get between London and Birmingham. It would probably be cheaper to move London or Birmingham, but the government has confirmed that HS2 will go ahead. The other, which appears to be some weird fever dream of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, is a bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland, an idea which, by the time it is completed, may well link two countries no longer members of the United Kingdom. Um, Robert, first of all, Boris Johnson does have form uh, for a fondness for big, eye-catching projects, some of which happened, some of which didn't. Uh, His time... As mayor, we think of the estuary airport, which didn't happen, uh, the garden bridge, which didn't happen at considerable cost, uh, and the cable car, which did happen, but which nobody actually uses. Um, What is it about Boris Johnson and, and big projects? I think uh, something must have happened in his childhood
3: when, uh, um, and it probably would have been a nanny, knowing Boris, but they snatched away the the Lego set or the Meccano, I'm really showing my age, but Boris is a bit younger than me, at an impressionable stage. He does like these things, and I tell you one of the reasons I suspect, and it's coming out, because it's a displacement for getting involved in an ideological argument. He doesn't like ideology. He doesn't... Um, whatever he re- is reported or misreported to have said about climate change, he doesn't like the climate change argument because he doesn't like the polemics of it. He is he is a pragmatist and he has said he has only had one conviction in his life. It was only a light conviction for a, a driving infringement. He is all about Boris and Boris builds. It's Boris the Builder. And... Um, <laughs> And yep. we have to get it out of the way. I don't think the bridge will happen. It is more than a bridge too far. He does these things. But um, HS2, this railway project, which you caricatured beautifully, it's, there's no, no 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 harm in that, um, is a conundrum for him because he wants to build... Infrastructure for the north and the way he has conceived the subsidy and enormous uh, 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 public expenditure for the early stages of this line, which will go as far as Birmingham, will take jobs out of the north and bring them to the south. Um, so he's in a bit of a, he's in a bit of a muddle. And the thing that Boris is absolutely dependent on not having an eye for detail, he's got to have good deputies. He's good, uh, got to have good executive commanders. And if he doesn't get this one right, and if a lot of other things and the two or three things we can immediately point to go badly wrong within the next two years, then he may just be a one-term
0: Prime Minister. Um, Tim, these big infrastructure projects, do people like them? Are they yes. vote Are they vote winners, by and large? Yes, love them. You like them, clearly. Yes. Well, are, you, are you excited about a bridge from okay. Northern Ireland to Scotland? Oh.
2: Perpetual moment, big ideas, <laughs> come on, get with it.
0: Fantastic storm stories.
2: <laughs> Let's get this country moving. Yeah, yeah that's, what, that's
0: my Boris impression, sorry. Um, listeners, unfortunately, didn't get the visual aspect of that. We'll Wave okay, was was your hands really around, good.
2: ruffle your hair and say, big ideas. <laughs> Look, uh, when he got on the road to being elected, he was up in somewhere like a Doncaster market. Uh, this is a big northern town in, in Yorkshire for, for, for listeners where they don't, uh, you know, no nonsense. And he barrels through the market. Oh, hello, yes, yes, we're going to save the fishermen. We're going to do this. We're going Yes. And it's energy. This country has been rather flat for 20 years and certainly self-obsessed for three years over Brexit. In he comes. He needs perpetual energy and colour. A lot of colour in a big yellow hard hat as you cut the big red ribbon
0: and you say, "You see, I'm getting this country back." And he'll politicians... need to be prime minister a long time to cut the big red ribbon on the Northern Ireland Scotland bridge. Well, just cut the idea.
2: Say, "Well, this is where we might do it," and I'll cut the ribbon. I don't think that one's going to happen as well. But no, it's this, it's this, I, it's this concept of, of perpetual movement and energy and big projects and, and good then... eye contact. Oh, yes. And I'm assuming you will then go on to the sort of great grand ones of of, of the past history where people are, you know, you remember them for these great projects do, or not if they fail.
0: Do, do either of you just quickly have a particular favourite white elephant?
3: Oh, the aircraft carriers, which
2: uh, a senior
3: senior civil servant said our main objective, one of the main objectives of Defence Review is to ensure they don't become the two most expensive uh, floating conference centres in the world. (laughs) Uh,
2: Two, but one isn't the White Elephant. The White Elephant is the Ryong Hotel in North Korea. 3,000 rooms. It's never been opened. It's been there for years and years and years. I mean, you know, because they don't get that many tourists. But going back to why some of them do them, the ego. I was a correspondent in Paris when Mitterrand came up with the idea of that massive glass pyramid outside the Louvre. Mm. Well, that is a monument. When I think of Mitterrand, you know, two or three things down the line of what I think about him, I remember he's the guy that, I mean, he didn't build a pyramid,
0: but in my mind... He built the Louvre Pyramid, and that's what some of them are after. Robert Fox and Tim Marshall, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we'll hear a bit more about two major upsets in European politics. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Over the past week, a pair of major upsets in Europe may have put paid to the idea that the populist insurgency which began in the cursed year of 2016 has ended. Monocle's Chris Chermak has more.
1: Two European political earthquakes this week. The emergence of the nationalist Sinn Féin as Ireland's strongest party and the resignation in Germany of Angela Merkel's presumed successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. Both have one key question in common. Should the political extremes be allowed a hand in governing? Let's start with Ireland, where Sinn Féin's surprising but narrow victory in parliamentary elections has plunged the country into uncertainty, as the two establishment parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, have refused to enter into any coalition with them, even though neither of those parties would seem to be able to govern on their own. Should these centrists rethink their stance? Next, consider Germany and a scandal in the eastern state of Turingia, where a hung parliament led Merkel's Christian Democrats and the far-right alternative for Germany to back the same candidate to lead the state. Though not a formal coalition, it marked the first time that centrists had even tacitly cooperated with the AFD at any level of government. That sent shockwaves through the German political establishment, forcing the National Party to intervene and Kram Karenbauer on Monday to resign. As in Ireland, one question will continue to split Germany's conservatives— Is there ever a time to partner with the far-right? An alternative tactic that has worked surprisingly well comes from my home country of Austria, where twice Austria's conservatives controversially agreed to partner with the far-right Freedom Party. Twice the Freedom Party collapsed in a scandal before the next election. Perhaps there's a lesson here for other countries to consider. Exclude national parties from governing at your own risk. Sometimes it's better to let them try and fail at governing with a chaperone before they gain enough popularity to take the reins all by themselves. That was Chris
0: Chermak, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machellari and researched by Nick Toomey. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of On Design. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.